are, uh, you are in for a treat, and I want to give you a little uh, background on Greg. I haven't told a lot of this stuff to you in prep for this night, and kind of wanted to hold it until we got here. But I want to kind of go over a little bit of my own testimony just so that you can know a little bit why uh, I am so excited for you <laughs> tonight. Um, I became, I, I went to a Southern Baptist church. Once I became a believer, I was at a Southern Baptist church. And if any of y'all know what Southern Baptist, most of you come from some Southern Baptist background. A lot of you do. Um, I heard the sermons, many of the sermons of uh, come forward, get saved every Sunday. It was the same message every Sunday. And by God's grace, I, God worked in my life and I became a believer after even hearing it that way. After about two years, I met my wife, and she was the most amazing, godly, Christ-like, Bible-loving woman I had ever met in my life. And one of the reasons why she was such a godly, Christ-honoring, Bible-loving woman was because Greg and Betsy mentored her at Washington Bible College. And by the grace of God, she somehow was blinded and decided to go ahead and marry me. Uh, and uh, Greg had told her, I don't know if you remember this, but before she went down to Florida, you're going to meet your husband down there. Uh, and she came down to Florida and met me. Greg ended up doing our, our wedding. And... Uh, he, God blinded him, too, and did not realize that he was <laughs> allowing Brenda to get married to this guy that knew about. He was a mile wide but an inch deep when it came to knowing the Bible. And all I knew how to do was tell people that Jesus died to pay for their sins and that he rose from the dead, and that was it. And there was no discipleship. I didn't know what, I didn't know what books of the Bible there were or any of this after two or three years. But by God's grace, God used my wife uh, to help point me to the word, and I started digging in. But even then, I was still very much a baby until we moved to North Carolina, and I got a wild hair and decided that I wanted to hire Greg to come and help teach me the Bible. And for a year... Again, an amazing thing happened. God brought him into my life, me and David Sprott, and uh, two, three other guys. One of them has since gone on to be with the Lord. Uh, we sat around the table, and every Tuesday morning, he taught us the Bible. And ladies and gentlemen, that's when I fell in love with God's Word. I'll never forget the day sitting on my floor in my living room. You were sitting in the you were sitting in the chair and just looking up at you and we were just talking about the glory of God and all the things that we had seen in the word of God. And just worshiping God for the for one of the deepest worships I've ever really worshiped. It wasn't just church. It was knowing God through his word the glory of God. And a lot of that is because God used Greg to really burden in my heart the word and 
good it is. So, all that said, after he picks on me and tells you about me singing Yankee Doodle and uh, all kinds of riding on a pony, uh, yeah, you're going to get all that. It'll be fun. Uh, in college, he became my professor also and just learned so much. This is a man of God. He loves God's word. And you're in for a treat. Thank you for coming. It's all yours. Thanks. behavior. Is this on? Okay, just checking. Just let me step this down. Oh, there's my wife, Betsy. You're in baby heaven, right? If you have a baby, please let my wife hold the baby. Make this woman happy. We make the worth the trip down already. Just uh, just to be able to do this and and it absolutely is a delight. I think we got the better end of the deal with Mike and Brenda. What do you think, Betsy? You land out. Now, actually, Brenda went down to Florida, and she came back and told us she was in, she found this man and came back engaged. And we kind of went, hmm, like this, <laughs> going down to work for a few months and come back and stuff. So it all worked out. And I didn't have a voice when I did their wedding. Uh, if think it finally a little bit came back in at the end. Is that right? Mike, you don't remember anything about that day anyway. <laughs> yeah, a little bit as best I could. So it sounds, have you ever seen The Godfather? It's kind of, that's about what it sounded like, uh, that. So it is a delight to be here. And actually, that one year that Mike was talking about was life-changing for me as well because it, it forced me to go and figure out how do you teach others about the Bible? It's one thing to study it in and of yourself. It's another thing to be able to teach somebody, to walk somebody through so they see the biblical logic that's there. And in the sovereignty of God, I ended up using the core class that we did there for all my years that I taught at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary, mostly the college part there. But some of the classes that I do at the seminary now is still based upon that group that we did back there. So I don't think that was wasted at all. And I've certainly learned a lot in the process. And it was a, it was a blessed year. It was a hard year in a lot of ways. And by God's grace, we're still seeing the fruit out of the year. Um, the Cup and the Glory was written during that one year in Charlotte, um, mostly at the dining room table with Mike and Brenda. I would hear this calamitous snoring, this <laughs> this grizzly bear attack type snoring as I would get out of my bed and think a thunderstorm must be rolling through and no, it's just Mike back there just, just sleeping away and how Brenda can sleep through that, I don't know. Talk about Jesus being asleep in the boat does not amaze me. Brenda sleeping by Mike, sleeping by Mike. Uh, I don't know if it's gotten any better. And so it was, um, we're going to do some of the things um, out of this and look forward to what we have to, to get to walk through so if you will, I know we've already prayed before. I have just made a commitment a long time ago never to step into the pulpit without stepping into prayer. And so, Lord, bless our time, please. Open our eyes and ears and hearts and minds and understanding to behold wonderful truths in your word. I pray that you'll bless this session tonight and this weekend, that you will just inflame a desire to walk with you in godliness and that you'll bear fruit out of this. We thank you for divine appointments and pray that you will use this accordingly. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.
We're going to be in the Bible eventually, if you want to turn to 1 Peter, is where we'll start. It'll take us just a little bit of time to get there. Just want to give a brief testimony on how I um, got into what it is that, that I study. I went through a period of about, oh, I don't know, somewhere around 8 to 10 years where God just pretty much blessed everything that I put my hand to. And I knew it was God blessing, and I, it wasn't, a, I don't think anyway, a, an arrogant thing. I just knew that God was blessing what I was doing. And what I thought was that that was just going to be the normal part of life. just thought it was going to be the normal flow of life. And so then we went through about a three-and-a-half-year period that was just uh, extremely trying, and uh, not that we were the greatest sufferers ever. But my wife and I, um, we had a twin girls die at birth. And people come out different. You know, people come out different with that. Whether you're saved or whether you're not, you come out different. And I think there's just something that God puts inside of parents that if you could take the place, if God was somehow to appear and say somebody in this room is going to die, the little girl is going to die, or somebody's going to die, sign up. It just comes with the territory. It's just a leaping heart love type deal. And so um, Brenda was our babysitter at that time. When I came back from the hospital, she was the first person I saw once I walked up the steps. And she was taking care of Lauren and Ben at the time. And um, as I have never before, I had gone through a long series where nobody died, where no friends died, no relatives died. And um, if you ever go through a stage of your life like that, then eventually it's going to catch up with you. And eventually you're just going to have, if you go 10 to 12 years and nobody dying close to you, then you're going to have a real cluster. And so we went through grief uh, in, a, in a different way. And I had never been to that depth before, and I had never been carried by God before. I knew that God was the one that was carrying And so the second round came in with this. that uh, I did teach at Washington Bible College. And in a long story, we ended up living in North Carolina, in Wake Forest, North Carolina, which is right outside Raleigh. Most of you here probably know that. I have to explain it when I'm on the West Coast. And it's very, very confusing when uh, people say, here we are at Wake Forest University in beautiful downtown Wake Forest. They're not. <laughs> They're in beautiful downtown Winston-Salem, which is the home of Wake Forest University, which used to be on the campus of Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary, R.J. Reynolds said, we'll pay you into eternity. That's back when tobacco was king. We'll pay you into eternity if you move Wake Forest University from Wake Forest about 90 minutes down the road to Winston-Salem. And so Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary took over the old Wake Forest College uh, campus, had the gymnasium there, a beautiful, beautiful setting. And so um, I, we lived in Wake Forest, North Carolina, right outside of Raleigh, suburb of Raleigh. And for a number of years, I would teach at Washington Bible College. We uh, ended up, when we were in the D.C. area, we were four, a family of four. would have been a family of six with the twins. And uh, we didn't make a great deal of money as a professor. And just, uh, I didn't realize how little we made until I went to apply for a loan. And the guy said, what do you make? And I told him. And he says, no, I mean for your full-time job. And I said, that's it. He said, that's it? He said, you qualify for welfare. <laughs> and so uh, we, didn't, we didn't know that. And uh, so we we couldn't afford up in the D.C. area. We had moved from Dallas, and Dallas had just uh, gone through a, this, this economic downturn with the oil. 
And so the houses in Dallas were selling for about 30000 You get a three-bedroom house for $30,000 in Dallas. And then we moved to the D.C. area, which was at the time the second or third highest uh, place in America. And so we couldn't afford up there. A long, long story. Ended up, my brother built us a house in North Carolina. We signed a contract with a house on a, uh, for that on a Monday, and our twins died on Thursday. We really had the house built in mind. And so for a long time, for a number of years, I would drive from Wake Forest about four and a half to five hours to drive up to the D.C. area off exit 20 to go to Lanham, right close to College Park, and would teach at Washington Bible College and then come back to, uh, to Wake Forest. And it wasn't perfect, and it wasn't, it was hard in a lot of ways. It was almost like there wasn't anything shady going on. It was almost like my wife and I were going in two different directions in a poor time. And so um, I ended up with this, um, ended up finishing a, a class at, at Washington Bible College, and I was going to teach a summer school class there. So I went to a couple of graduation parties, two or three graduation parties. And I was on a, at the campus here at Washington Bible College. I had a motel-type setting, and I had a room down, at a mo down there kind of that they had for me the entire time that I was there. And my room was right next to the infirmary. And came back in from this party, and I don't know if you've ever gotten sick when you're by yourself. When you're by yourself and you get sick, you don't have a lot of people to talk to. Or if you do have a lot of people to talk to when you're by yourself, then you really, really are sick. And so I was, um, I was watching NBC Dateline, and it had a show on the Ebola virus, of all things. And so I'm lying in bed, and I'm watching what they're doing. They've got... They, and they were talking about how the people would have these, these just bone-rattling chills. And so I'm sitting in the bed having these bone-rattling chills. And then they talked about all the stomach stuff that would kick in. So all the stomach stuff kicked in. And I got out of bed and crawled to the infirmary and got a thermometer out. And it was, it was all I could do. I mean, I was trying to grab it like that. I got a thermometer. So I put this thermometer in my mouth. And I held it in there about seven or eight seconds, and I pulled it out. I was scared I was going to bite it in half uh, because of the teeth just rattling. And I pulled it out, and it was 103.8. And I thought, I've got a bad thermometer because I've never had a fever. It was 103 or 104.8. you remember? Somewhere around there. I think it might have been. Anyway, English, I was an English lit major, so numbers always just kind of, you know, I don't do taxes for people with this. Because they guess it got up in the neighborhood about 105 degrees. And one of the things I want to find out when I get to heaven, I called my wife later, and I told her, so I think I almost died. Because I'm not sure, so I think I almost did. And I, um, I, I either got to the point of where death was, or God's going to say, no, that was just a fever. And you, and you never really did. I knew where I was going, and I knew why I was getting there. What I didn't know at the time was whether this was where God would have me, if I was going to go home and be with him or not. And so um, I ended up missing a few days of the summer school class that I was going to teach, and I would have these full body sweats where I'd be talking to somebody, and it would look like I had played basketball, full-court basketball in downtown Tampa in the middle of July. And so I'd be talking to someone, I could feel the sweat just pouring off my face, saturating my shirt. It was embarrassing. I'd be just be standing there. Uh, went with a friend of mine out to, quote, eat after that and uh, a few days afterwards. And we're at the restaurant, 
And all of a sudden, it looked like somebody came by and just hosed me down in the process, and out we walked, and you know, dripping the whole time with this. Came back uh, two weeks after this, and um, came back to North Carolina, started our summer plans, and my in-laws had planned to move furniture. And at the time, I was a relatively young son-in-law, and I was 39 at the time, and they had rented this truck in order they could help move furniture uh, from some of their for some of their older relatives, and I got out of bed on a Saturday morning, and I about fell on my face, and I looked down and I had a bright red dot on the base of my big right toe, and that was the only symptom. But I barely could walk. It was just it was like broken bones type uh, of stuff, and I don't know if you've ever been in this predicament. You probably haven't. But if you've ever been in this predicament, you can't call your in-laws and say, I can't help you move furniture today because I've got a red dot on the base of my toe. And so I lugged my leg and everything up and down the steps and helped them move furniture and got back, uh, got up the next morning and it was a red streak uh, up my toe. And we went to the doctors, one of those urgent care deals, and they said, you've got a red streak going up your toe. And they said, this is strange. And they checked for tick bites. They checked for Lyme disease. They checked for anything they could find with this. Gave me some antibiotics and said, if it's worse, then come back and come see us. So we got up the next morning, and it had gone from a red streak on the base of the toe to a red streak started to head up inside the ankle. And so we went back to doctor's urgent care. Off to the hospital you go. Went to the hospital. They admitted me to the hospital. I stayed for about a week. And then everything started swelling, and the feet, it started in the feet, and it looked like bluish black, it was bluish black feet, that looked like cartoon character feet. And I remember, you know how sick you have to be to be in a hospital? I was in the hospital about a week with this, and I remember looking at my feet and just thinking, if I had a pen, and I was to stick it into my foot, would it pop like a balloon? Would it just go around the room and what would I be left with and so it worked its way up both feet uh, the ankles now my wife was a kindergarten teacher and I had seen a picture of a foot on her kindergarten door or something a billboard whatever it's blackboard what's it called thank you boy I'm a child caught in a time work with us on the bulletin board I had no idea all those little bones inside the feet. I mean, to me, it was just foot. I had no idea. It never dawned on me. There are actually numbers of bones. So every joint that was connected to that started swelling. And the knees and the hips, the hip did. Um, it got in my wrist and in my fingers a little bit. It got up one spot on the neck, and it got up to my right jawbone and not my left. And everything swelled, and everything was excruciating pain as it swelled. And the best they could determine that I had what turned out to be rheumatoid arthritis and had it in about 70 or so joints. And it's kind of irrelevant. When you get up around 60 or 70, how many joints you have with rheumatoid arthritis, it just, everything hurt. I couldn't, I couldn't identify what hurt and what didn't. Um, and they've changed so much with this. They, they came and got me out of the hospital bed and said, you have got to walk. If you don't walk, these things are going to lock up, and you'll never have use of them the rest of your life. If I had had this five or ten years earlier, they would have put me in a wheelchair, rolled me out. You've probably seen some of the older women with the fingers and stuff like this. That's what would have happened. And so um, I had different doctors give me different numbers on the 
with the rheumatoid arthritis. One doctor said you've got the one in five hundred, one one in five thousand case of rheumatoid arthritis, and one said you've got the one in fifty thousand case of rheumatoid arthritis, and another one said you've got the one in five hundred thousand case of rheumatoid arthritis. And I'll go with a high number on that one. I've got the one in five hundred, and it was just very, very bizarre. No history of that in my own life or in anybody we knew family-wise. And so I learned a new uh, definition of physical pain. I was on disability for seven months. I went for about a year without wearing any kind of shoes. Our children are how old at the time, Beth? Three and five. She's a lot better with this than I am. And so there were three and five at the time. And I was the shiny star patient for what they told me to do. Whatever my rehab, I went to rehab at first. And I thought, this is going to be fine, that they are going to fan my face, they are going to put warm towels on me, and they are going to feed me peeled grapes. And I walked into physical rehab, and they said two things. They said, don't hyperventilate and don't pass out. And what they would do, they said, we've got to break the joints open. And so they would hold it down as far as it could go, and I understood exactly why they said don't do either one of those things hold it back the same way and hold it for 30 seconds, go through the body and do that, and then you go home and do it yourself. And I did it. I did everything they told me to. And again, I was your shiny star patient because I wanted to play with the kids. I wanted to, I had this list of things I wanted to do. Uh, they told me I had to go walk, I, and I got up and walked. I'd walk around southeastern campus and cry and get back in the car and go down. We'd only lived a mile from that campus. And I just wanted to make sure that there was nothing lacking on my part. That if I did, I wanted to make sure I had done everything they told me to do. And then if I had the disease the rest of my life, then I had the disease and you kind of deal with it. But I didn't want to look at myself in the mirror and say if I had done better, if I had taken care of myself better. And so I did everything that they told me to. And uh, by God's grace, I have finished two marathons since that time. And I had to stop and massage the feet. Um, I ran the Richmond Marathon twice. I, I, I ran the San Diego Marathon when I turned 30. I stood up straight when I turned 40, which was harder. And then I ran the, ran the Richmond Marathon when I turned 48. And I'm not talking about keeping up with the Kenyans or any nonsense like that. But I did. Uh, I ran it. And just one of the most worshipful things I've ever done in my life. It's just, an, just a delight to have that, that honor to do so. I'm actually healthier with it because it makes me take care of myself and exercise and, relatively speaking, clean up the diet. And so we've gone through two different parts, and God had carried us through there. And then we went through a time, and this is when Mike and Brenda came into the picture. We went through a time where God just started closing all the doors. All these previous times, all these doors that had been open, they had been wide open. I was always the one invited. I was always the one on the team. I was always the one this and that. And then it stopped. And I could not give myself away. And it just, I, I would have people from Washington Bible College where I had just been. We moved to North Carolina. Um, and they would say, are you teaching somewhere? And at the time, I was not. And they would say, why? I said, I don't know. And they said, are you pastoring somewhere? And at the time, I was not. And they said, why not? And I said, I don't know. And... Um, I said, I don't know, so many times. I said it to my wife. She had very, very specific questions. 
What are we going to do? I don't know. When's this going to end? I don't know. I started just to get it tattooed on the hands just to save time because we had gone from this time, we had gone from, we grew up in in the North Carolina area, in the Raleigh area, we had gone to the LA area for seminary, we'd gone to Dallas, more seminary, to the DC area, and then we were back to North Carolina. We had two dead babies, we had one dissertation that was not done, and I had rheumatoid arthritis body, and everything just stopped. And if you had told me at the time that that John MacArthur is going to be contacting you about coming to teach out at the Master's Seminary, I would have thought you were nuts. Or if you think that, or if you you had told me that you're going to end up writing a book and you're also going to be talking about this at different places (laughs) that you go to, it's going to be translated into different languages and such. All of this came out of this particular time. And so I learned a, a whole, whole lot in the process. And so basically, I just tell people what it is that, that I learned. If you have your Bibles, you can either listen or turn to 1 Peter chapter 5. We will be in the Word and stay in there for the most part. But I got to the point where, um, uh, I, well, I had been invited to, to preach in chapel back at Washington Bible College. And for the first time in my life, I was getting ready to preach on something that I did not fully believe that would come true. Now, 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 10 says, And after you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself, emphatic in the Greek, perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Four verbs in a row, staccato fashion, just for emphasis. This is not going to be a change in fortune. This is going to be God himself to intervene. And after you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. It was interesting to talk to unbelievers during this time, unbelieving family members that we have. Hang in there would be their advice. Good luck would be their advice. 1 Peter 5.10 is a lot more biblical than after you've suffered for a little while. The God of all grace is going to do this. I got invited to speak, and I thought, this is the text that I'm going to end up doing. And for the first time in my life, I did not fully believe that it would come true. Now, I would have no qualms whatsoever. If I were talking to you, I'd have no qualms to say, this has come true for you. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 10 will be a verse that will be true in your life. I had basically given up on, not on God, I had given up on life. I remember just pleading with God. Isn't there an inner city church somewhere that needs a pastor? Isn't there a redneck church out in the country somewhere that needs a pastor? that why do you allow me to learn what you have taught me and then the outlets have just just dried up and so a couple of disclaimers with us understood in my heart's core two things one this would make sense in heaven i had not given up on god and i have not did not shake my fist at god but i had given up on life i understood when when i got to heaven this to make perfect sense, and God would not owe me an apology. Absolutely knew that. But I, I wasn't suicidal. It crossed my mind one time, about if I were going to do it, how I would do it, but I wasn't suicidal. But I, I didn't want to play shuffleboard in Florida, retire down here. I didn't want to uh, have $10 million. I had been involved in a fruitful ministry, and then God cut it off and 
So I got invited to speak there, and I, I felt so dirty. I felt so hypocritical because for the first time to use the Bible in a way that I fully don't believe this will ever come true in my life. And somehow, I have no idea how I ended up there. I remember I was at my breakfast table, our breakfast table in our house in Wake Forest. And I ended up in Mark chapter 10. We're going to be there tomorrow morning. I ended up in Mark chapter 10. Where James and John come to Jesus and say, Teacher, we want to do whatever it is we ask of you. What does you want me to do? We want to sit in your glory, one on your right and one on your left. And Jesus says, you do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink and to be baptized with the baptism which I baptize with? And beloved, the lights cut on. My three and a half year period ended there. I think I was just about as different. It's not so much that this ended. I came out different in the process. At the end of three and a half years, I was just about as different as I was the day I was saved. I think what happened from a biblical basis. John chapter 15, you don't have to turn there, but the first couple of verses, Jesus says, whoever bears fruit, I prune, in order that he bears more fruit. Now, I don't know if you've ever seen anything pruned. Are y'all pretty close to agricultural stuff out here? I have to explain this in L.A. from time to time. North Carolina, I don't have to explain pruning, generally speaking. You ever seen anything pruned? It looks like they killed it. It's like there's nothing there. Now, if we were to prune ourselves, a little here, a little off the top, nails, I'm good to go. Bring it on. He doesn't say you go prune yourself and you come back. He says whoever, whoever bears fruit, I prune in order to bear more fruit. The time after the pruning is not the time of the fruit bearing. And it's the master who prunes. And he does a superb job. And so I think what happened at that, that morning in Wake Forest when I got into Mark 10 was the little green sprout, spiritually speaking, grew. Because I came out different on the other side. Brenda, you weren't there when I spoke, were you? You were, you were long gone from Washington Bible College by that time. I went back to speak at Washington Bible College. And I did what we are going to do tomorrow morning for the most part. And people got up afterwards, and they walked out in silence. And I'd never had that before. I'd had them pretty mad before and other things, but I had never had a group just get up and walk out like you're in a bank vault or they're walking out. I mean, it was just, just hushed, hushed. A few hundred people out the door they went, and nobody made much noise at all. And I remember thinking, this is real good or it's real bad, but it's not in between. It's not marginal with us and so. And so with this, I studied the glory of God. From time to time, I get introduced as Dr. Greg Harris. He studies suffering. I don't study suffering. I study the glory of God. It was suffering that led me into this. In fact, if you have First Peter, I might want to check just a few verses. Here's what I started with. We're going to work our way through the sheet with this. Look what it says. First Peter chapter 1, verse 10 and following. As to the salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful search and inquiry, verse 11, seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them, as he was predicting, and look at what it says, the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. And it's always going to be that order. It's never going to be the glories first and then the suffering. So the sufferings plural of Christ and the glories plural that follows with us. 
Also in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12, look at what it says. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing. And I was surprised. And some of you may be in a situation like that. Surprised at how long it is. Surprised at how deep it is. Surprised at how much it hurts. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing, as though some strange thing were happening to you. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing so that also at the revelation of his glory. Now there's the order again. At the revelation of his glory, you may rejoice with exultation. Therefore, chapter 5, verse 1, look at what it says. Therefore, I exhort the elders among you as your fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ. And here's what Peter writes, and a partaker also of the glory that is to be revealed. And then the verse we started with, 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 10. And after you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who calls you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Now, I didn't know a thing in the world about the glory of God until I started studying this. And so I am under the assumption that there are probably people in this room who don't know anything about the glory of God would do little things kind of along the lines of uh, thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory, and different verses kind of read pretty much at random. But there's things with the sheet that kind of set the table for what we'll be doing the rest of the sessions together. <coughs> On number one with this, God's glory is vastly greater than our comprehension. This is a beginning point. And what happens is we generally diminish God's glory just by our own definition and the restraints and the parameters and the restrictions that we put on it. You don't have to turn there unless you want to. It's a very familiar verse to many of you in here. Psalm 19.1, the heavens are declaring the glory of the Lord. Now, that's a significant, significant statement. We're going to come back to this in just a moment. We diminish God's glory a lot of times, just by our own restricted definition. All right, for instance, have y'all ever sung, my eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord? Now, just as a theological point of reference, why you would want to be singing Yankee war songs in a southern church is a different matter. You'll have to work out your own thing. Brenda, I got to understand it. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling with that. Now, we used to sing one, and it sounds good and even somewhat spiritual. Surely the presence of the Lord is in this place. Y'all ever see that? I mean, here is my, I can feel his my power and his grace. All right, now, let's stretch the truth a little bit. I can hear the rush of angel wings. Really? It's just a bad case of winter itch. I can hear the rush of angel wings. And then the next line. I see glory on each face. And I looked at myself and shaved before I came over here. Something I generally don't do on a Friday night. But when I looked in the mirror, I didn't see glory. And I am under the assumption you don't see it right now either. Is that right? And I don't want to break anybody's heart in here or diminish your perspective of reality. 
But when I look out here, I don't see a whole lot of glory shining off anybody's face. Surely the presence of the Lord is in this place. We see glory on his face. Some of you not taste death until you see what the kingdom looks like when Jesus comes in his glory. He was taken up to the mountain. He was praying. He was transfigured before them. And in Luke chapter 9, it says, and they saw, we'll get back to this tomorrow, they saw the glory of God on the face of Christ. We diminish this so much. The heavens are declaring the glory of the Lord. I was, a, again, an English lit major in college and taught English in junior high for four years before going to seminary. And we ended up at a church, I pastored in College Park, Maryland. And we had people, we were down the road from Goddard Space Flight Center. If you ever see Goddard Space Flight Center on the news, they'll have it from, it's one of those main NASA deals. We're just about a mile or so. We had NASA scientists, uh, we had NSA guys, we had spies, we had all, we had an interesting church body. But I had one guy there who had his own satellite at the Smithsonian Institute. Now, I don't know. God couldn't trust me with that. I don't think I could go without telling somebody at a stoplight, rolling down the window and say, you seen my satellite at the Smithsonian Institute? <laughs> he was into quantum physics. And he would bring me these books. And they're so it was so over my head. And just I would tell him, he would bring these books and it would be page after page of math formulas. Dr. Bob Langle. And he used to do door-to-door -door evangelism at the University of Maryland. And he wanted to be a pastor. And he says, people don't feel comfortable with me, and I don't understand why. <laughs> and I said, Bob, you ever hear that phrase, it doesn't take a rocket scientist? Went, yeah, <laughs> so you're a rocket scientist. Oh. It has something to do with magnetic fields. And I asked him, just in your simplest terms, can you tell me what it is that you're working on in my, and put it on a level that I can understand? Why does it matter about magnetic fields? He said, life. So what? He says, no, there's no life without it. Oh. Why is that? He said, blah, 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 blah. <laughs> <laughs> so anything on the Discovery Channel or any of those science shows where it has anything about magnetic fields, I think I'd be able to converse with Bob now a little bit. He's gone home to be with the Lord. But he took me on a VIP tour of Goddard Space Flight Center. Not because I was a VIP, because he was a VIP. He took me to their main cafeteria there, and it looked like a Far Side cartoon. I don't know for those of y'all still watch Far Side. White coats, little things in their pockets. I mean, if you were to open up your eyes and say, where are you? I, said, I don't know, but they're scientists. You could just tell by looking at them. But they gave me the VIP tour, and they said, we, they don't like to say guess. We estimate in our galaxy... There are 200 billion stars, give or take. They're not exactly sure. I don't know what 200 billion anything is. They guesstimate that there are 200 billion, give or take, galaxies, each containing 200 billion, give or take, stars. Beloved, this is a biggie. The heavens do not contain the glory of God. The glory of God contains the heavens. It's a big, big difference. My life changed. That was one of those adjustment thoughts. And so the heavens are declaring the glory of the Lord. 
but the glory of the Lord goes vastly beyond this. And so we diminish it. Generally speaking, we diminish God's glory just by the, the restrictions that we place on this. And so God's glory is vastly, vastly beyond anything that we have. In fact, the number two with this, if you care to turn over to Second Thessalonians chapter 1. Second Thessalonians chapter 1 verse 9 is the best New Testament description I know of what hell is. There's going to be torment. There's going to be flames. Those are effects. The Second Thessalonians chapter 1 verse 9. Right, let's think in terms of this and just walk through the logic and set the stage for what we'll be doing for the rest of the time together. All right, so the heavens are declaring the glory of the Lord. Pretty much the glory of the Lord is, if you wanted the shortest just definition that I found for the glory of the Lord, are the attributes and or activities of God. The attributes and or activities of God. And so you'll find that all throughout this, especially in regard to the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. So for instance, we'll get to this eventually down the road, but when people seeing mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord, they have not. They haven't come close. What did you see on this? If you were to stand in heaven and look out, God would have to point out where earth is. Such a speck. On this one little planet, this little speck planet. If you were to divide it into half, then divide it into quarters, go to one continent, down to one country, go to a Civil War battle scene. And I haven't been involved in anything like that, and I'm sure the gore of this was ferocious, just beyond my comprehension. But, beloved, saying that my eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord, and, and tying it into something like that, versus what the Bible says, Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give us light, the stars will fall from the sky, and the powers of the heaven will be shaken. And then the sign of the Son of Man shall appear in the sky, and then all the tribes of the earth shall mourn when they see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. Your eyes have seen that? No, not really. All right, so God's glory is vastly beyond anything that we can comprehend. And his glory extends to everywhere that he is, with one exception. Second Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 9. And look at what it says in reference to this. Talking about the enemies of Jesus when he returns, and these will pay the penalty of eternal destruction, away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. Jesus will return and judge the enemies. Let's put it this way. Heaven is heaven because of the presence of the Lord. It's not the golden streets. It's not the pearly gates. It's not the other stuff. It's heaven because it's the presence of the Lord. An aspect of hell, God has created in people eternity. And so he has chosen to remove any kind of evidence of his glory and the end result is hell. In fact, I don't know. You might want to, yeah, we got time. Are you all the good at turning at places? All right, I'll race you. I'll be on good behavior. And my wife comes in with a little bit of jet lag, so I'll be on good behavior with her, too. 
I'll raise you. Mike, where are we headed? Matthew, that's right. Matthew chapter 25, verse 41. Found it first. Let's do it again. Matthew chapter 25, verse 41. Now, don't feel bad. If you need to use your index or table of contents inside your Bible, you go right ahead. Mike Sprott did it every class we had. I ever had him with at Southeastern. And so we never made fun of him then. And so we want you to feel free if you don't know where a particular book is. And so feel free to look at that. We'll wait for you. Matthew chapter 25, verse 41. It's fascinating theology because look at what it says in reference to hell. It was originally prepared for the devil and his angels. That's God's original plan for this. God did not create hell. He prepared hell. The Greek word hetamazo is used. You don't have to know that necessarily. But hell was prepared, not created. Let me show you. You can listen or turn there either one. John chapter 14, some of you are familiar with this verse. Jesus says, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's home, house, are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to Hedamazo, prepare a place for you. So both heaven and hell are prepared by God. Not so much let there be torment, let there be flames, let there be ongoing eternal destruction. What's the difference between create and prepare? My wife, by God's grace, is going to prepare our Thanksgiving meal but she shall not create the turkey, right? Most of y'all have never gone to a place where you have created the turkey, right? So preparation with us. A lot of people say this shows the evil God in creating hell. He prepared it. He's preparing two places, and he offers people life and eternity with him. Now, there's going to be torment. There's going to be flames. We're not trying to take away that, and they will be in the presence of the Lamb. You can read Revelation chapter 14. But part of the ache of hell is going to be eternal separation from God, away from his power, and away from his glory. All right, so just to begin with, God's glory is vastly beyond what we comprehend it generally to be. God's glory extends everywhere where he is except for one aspect, this little caveat, this little sliver that he's made prepared, and the end result is hell. Third thing on your sheet, look at what it says. While we're in 2 Thessalonians, or we were anyway, weren't we? I guess I had you turn. Sorry. That'll be warmed up anyway for Second Thessalonians. I've had this Bible since nineteen eighty three. Some of you probably were not even around then, were you? I would hate to lose this. I know what side of the page things are on. Romans five, right hand column, one side down. Second Thessalonians, look at what it says. If we were to write this, this would be downright blasphemy. Second Thessalonians. <coughs> It was for this, 2 Thessalonians 2.14. It was for this that he called you through our gospel. Don't you love verses like this? You ever wonder why God called you through the gospel? Then look at what it says. That you might gain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, that's incredible. That's his glory. Now, let me ask you something. Does your... Does your article, I mean, does your Bible have a definite article, the, in front of it? You may gain the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
The shorts have that, generally speaking, most of you. All right, let me do something. Um, my mama was, my, I grew up in a blue-collar family. Both my parents went to high school. That's as far as they went. I uh, grew up in the country. Raleigh has since grown up and swallowed the farmland uh, close by. I didn't live on the farm, but I could look out the window and see the farm. Then the Yankees moved down and kind of everything changed and urban sprawl, but we'll move on to other matters with this. And with this, my mother was so proud. Golly, she was proud. And so when I would study, when I went to seminary, I wanted to make sure that I could take the, try to take the nuggets of God's word. And I would always use my mom as kind of the, the sounding board, my imaginary sounding board. And so every now and then, I would use an educated word that she would just, mm, mm, that's my boy. That's my boy up there using educated words. So I'm going to use one, and you feel free if you want to, to mm, mm, as the Spirit leads you. In fact, any time throughout the sessions, if you just got an Indian, it's got to come out and bring it on out, and we'll, we'll do with this. So, for instance, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, 14 in the Greek can, has an anarthrous construction. And an anarthrous construction, generally speaking, there is no definite article in the Greek. If you were to read this straight through in the Greek, and for those who have gone through seminary, if you want to look at this, there's no definite article. The translators put it in there to kind of make it flow. We're not going to get the glory because that would make us co-equals. And we would not be worshiping him. And he may be worshiping us. And that's not going to happen. The anarthra's mm, construction generally shows the quality somewhat of this. We're going to have varying degrees of glory. There are going to be varying degrees of reward. Eternity is a long, long time. I just... I don't know about you personally. It doesn't mean you have to go into full-time Christian service. But what it does mean in the sense to, to take your walk seriously. Because you're going to give an account to God for what it is that you have done with this life that he's given you. Be you male or female with us. But for all this thing, and this is a chapter that deals with the Antichrist. And after dealing with the Antichrist, it says, and again, if we were to write this, that it's for this purpose he called you. You may gain the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. Incredible. It's hard to tell exactly how many verses are about the glory of God. You've got glory, glorifying, glorified, and you're talking about hundreds there. And yet sometimes you'll have, like in Psalm 19.1, the heavens are declaring the glory of the Lord. The whole chapter talks about that, about the glory of the Lord in different fashions. And yet that's the only verse that contains the word glory. So a lot of times you have a word that talks about the glory of God, then three or four verses that follow with this that still are talking about aspects of his glory. And so you can think in terms of this. Every one of those ultimately relate to your eternal reward in heaven. And that's incredible. That is, I could spend the rest of my life in this particular verse. In fact, if you want to peek at one more, Hebrews chapter 2, I'll raise you. Found it first. Here we go. Hebrews chapter 2. And we'll look at verses 9 and 10. 
talking in reference to Jesus, the author writes, we do see him who has been made for a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus, because of the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor. There's the order again, suffering and glory. Glory and honor, that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting for him, for whom are all things, and through whom all are all things. Look at verse 10. And bringing many sons to glory, to perfect the author of their salvation through sufferings. Sometimes the word in the Greek text has to do with sons, and sometimes contrasts daughters. Sometimes the word sons covers everybody. This is one that covers everybody. This is not a male-female distinction. But when you're talking about you've been called for this purpose, you may gain the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. If you're a child of God, you're in the process of one step being closer home to glory. I am, I just turned 55. I don't mind telling people how old I am. Betsy minds. Betsy says, if you tell people how old you are, they're going to figure out how old I am. I said, Betsy, you just have to add 20, 25 years to my age, and people are going to be in the ballpark. <laughs> and I said, I'm proud to be old, married to an older woman. And so I, I'm not, I'm not morbid. I am not anything other than I know I'm not going to be 18 in this physical body again. You ever see, you probably do around Florida quite a bit, don't you? People trying to be 18 years old again, going on 60, be they male or female. And I know the outer man's decay. I understand that aspect of it. If you're a child of God, you're a step home to eternity. If you're lost, you're a step home to eternity. I have unsaved relatives who live in utter fear of death, and they've got good reason to do so. This situation where the, the lady died unexpectedly, from our standpoint, she did. Was this lady saved, Mark, as far as this lady saved, Psalm 139, our days are numbered before there's yet one of them. This is the sovereign timing of God. Um, I'm involved with a nonprofit ministry and um, didn't want to be buck, kicked, and screamed, and God just put the thing together. And the absolute last thing in the world I wanted to do was be a part of a nonprofit ministry and just wouldn't let, you know, like fly paper, it got stuck on my fingers, and um, just, so we're doing it. And God's blessed it. But our lawyer that came in from his son's 12th birthday party and collapses dead in the, in the bedroom. John MacArthur, when he did the funeral, said, we start with the sovereignty of God. First and foremost, we start with this. We don't understand it. Um, makes no sense to us. But you see, all of this, 50 years from now, 100 years from now, I sure hope I don't live to be. I, when I was a baby Christian, I wanted to live to be 120 as though I had some kind of control over it. Moses, I read in the Bible, was 120 years old, and I thought, you know what? That sounds good to me. I'm going to go for the 120 until I started visiting nursing homes. And then I decided, you know, I, I hope, I sure hope. I, don't. I keep telling Betsy, bury me happy. If I go home to be with the Lord, I'm headed to glory. The more I study the glory of the Lord, I was studying the glory of the Lord, just having a deep Bible study, stopped my study, went long enough to watch North Carolina get trounced in the National Basketball Championship. Uh, they would have gone to the championship game. They lost to Kansas by a couple hundred points that particular game. 
before I think I would have spent a week in the funk. And when I study the glory of God, I look at that. If my team wins, I go yay and I go to bed. And if my team loses, I go, boy, that's too bad, and I go to bed. Because the glory of God changes. All right, let's do this. We'll start winding down. Romans chapter 8. All of these are on your sheet just by way of review. God's glory is vastly greater than what we comprehend it to be. God's glory extends to everywhere that he is, and that's pretty far with one exception. Hell has no revelation of the glory of God. He could if he wanted to. He has chosen not to. And the end result is, is hell. He doesn't have to create it. He prepares it by removing his glory. That God has called us that we may gain glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. Then Romans 8, and we'll look at 2 Corinthians 4. These verses will change your life. For me, whenever I get depressed, I go to Romans 8 or to Revelation 21 and 22. Romans 8, 18 through 39 is on glorification, talking about the matters related to the Lord's return. Now look at what it says in Romans chapter 8, verse 18, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is yet to be revealed. Now that's the Apostle Paul writing this under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. This is Apostle Paul who has had a preview of heaven. Wouldn't that give your spiritual life a goose, a quick start? If God gave you a five-minute preview of heaven or hell, I don't know which would affect me the most. I'd prefer heaven, but Paul had one. Paul says, I don't know, in the body, out of the body, I don't know. I know a man caught up to the third heaven and was able to see a little glimpse of this. So Paul says that I consider, I reckon, I write it down as a fact, that the sufferings of this present age are in no way worthy to be compared with the glory that's yet to be revealed. The Greek word for worthy is axios. You don't need to know that. But axios... Scales are balanced. Have you ever see the thing where you've got the, they still use them in third world countries. They used to use it with the justice, with the court, but that was kind of out of whack. So they, it's probably still in there. It's probably not as functional as it used to be in a lot of cases. You go to a third world country, you got a pile of rocks on one side, you got bananas on the other. When you have the proper number of rocks and the proper number of bananas, the scales are axios worthy. And Paul says, I consider that the sufferings of this present age are in no way axios worthy of the glory that is to be revealed. If you believe this verse, better still if you live it out. There is no ministry too small if it's done unto the glory of God. There is nothing that you do for him that is too small. And if you keep your focus here, if you do this, and it will change your life and it will cause hardship in your life. If you do this with the focus on him. See, he's in the process now of preparing glory. That's the fifth point on your sheet. He's in the process of preparing glory now. But most of us don't realize that or appreciate it. And I certainly didn't at the time, a lot of the aspects. And our last section of scripture that we'll end with correlates with this. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 16 through 18. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, 
Here's what Paul says. Therefore we do not lose heart, verse 16, but though our outer man is 55 years old and decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. And look at what it says in verse 17, for momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory vastly beyond all comparison. Now this is if you're walking with the Lord. If you're not walking with the Lord, when we do prayer class, when somebody bring up a prayer request, I teach prayer class at the Master's Seminary. When people bring up a prayer request, I'll ask, is this person saved? Yes, she is. All right, let's pray that God will be glorified in this. Let's pray that God will, if he wants to intervene, that he'll intervene. Pray they'll learn what they have to learn from this. So if I bring up a prayer request, is this man saved? No, he's not. Let's pray that God will use this in his life to break him and bring him to the end of himself and to the Lord Jesus Christ. A world of difference in how you pray for unsaved people and how you pray for saved people. 2 Corinthians chapter 4 is written to saved people. It is also written to saved people who are walking with the Lord. If you are saved and you're living in rebellion just because you go through hard times, or if I do something stupid sinfully and then I have the consequences of that sin, that's not what this is talking about. I, by God's grace, I have been faithful to my wife. But say that I clowned around with my wife and she ended up losing, lo leaving me. Losing me too, but leaving me. If she did that, I could not take this verse and say, this momentary light affliction producing an eternal weight of glory. No, it's not. It's the consequences that God have brought for sinful behavior on my part. If you're walking with God and you're going through whatever it is, you, see, if you live long enough, and a lot of times the younger people don't believe this, if you live long enough, you're not going to be young. And your beautiful body, it's not going to be your beautiful body. Nothing works like it used to be. Uh, the older I get, I get all kind of uh, new wake-up calls every morning. Like, wow, the outer man really is decaying. I can't do remotely what I used to do athletically and such. And that's all right. I'm at the point where that, that's a good thing, relatively speaking, with this. This momentary light affliction does not seem momentary, does not seem light. It is producing present tense, an eternal weight of glory vastly beyond all comparison. If you take Romans 8.18 in this verse and you live it out, it will change your life. So how's this? The heavens are declaring the glory of the Lord. God's glory extends to everywhere that God is, with one exception, First, Second Thessalonians 1.9, hell. It's for this he called you, that you may gain the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. God is in the process of not only bringing us to glory, Hebrews chapter 2, but if you walk with him, producing glory inside you. So how's this for an itty little request? Teacher, we want you to do whatever it is we ask of you. What do you want? We want to sit in your glory. One on your right and one on your left. You do not know what you're asking for. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink? And are you able to be baptized with the baptism? That's what we'll pick up tomorrow. One little side note just on the run. It's interesting. An eternal weight of glory. God's glory has weight. Ask Mike, he knows this. Just ask him. He's going to act like he doesn't ask. God's glory has weight to this. 
If you have ever struggled through a diet, let me encourage you. It is going to be the heavy ones in heaven with a greater glory. The string beams are going to be on the side of the road. Just thought I'd throw that out being 55 years old with that. So I look forward to what we have, beloved. We'll pick up in Mark chapter 10 tomorrow off to the races that we go. Mike, am I supposed to close or hand it over to you or how you want to? Oh, the songs, that's right. The Battle Hymn of the Republic and surely the, the presence of the Lord is in this place. <laughs> I've ruined so many songs for my wife. I'll ask them. Hmm? You'll never find. <laughs> Another love life. <laughs>